passage this morning is Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed from of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. The word of the Lord. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we uh, remember again in your presence the remarkable truth that the creator of the universe who has always been and who always will be uh, speak to us who are but a breath compared to you. And that right now you are here with us and your spirit is at work among us. And so remembering that, Lord, we do ask, um, would you please help us to listen. Would you please nourish us by your word? Uh, would you please strengthen us in the hope that we have in your promises that we more and more would be the people you call us to be? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, many years ago when I was in college, um, I had one professor who was kind of a mentor of mine. And I remember right around the time I was proposing, going to be proposing to Jennifer, uh, he said, 
Now, you should know something about when you get engaged. When you get engaged, things are going to suddenly get stressful. Sometimes your head's going to get turned around. You're going to kind of like lose sight of things. And in those moments, he said, just remember right now where things are seen clearly so you can remember you were in your right mind when you were thinking you were going to do this. Which was an, a new thought to me, the idea that we might see things more clearly sometimes than others, and it is important for us to see, to kind of lean in those times of clarity. Around that same time, I heard another bit of counsel uh, that was similar, except it wasn't about marriage, it was about faith. And the counsel was very simply, don't doubt in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. That's a statement that stuck with me ever since. Don't doubt in the dark, what you knew to be true in the light. That is, there are, there are times where God in his kindness will make things clear, and you will see, you will be in the light. And then there are other times where, whether it's because of sleeplessness or stress or whatever, where nothing will seem clear. And the point is, remember when you saw clearly and let that be what guides you. Don't allow the darkness of the moment to shape the truth that you know to be true and you knew to be true when you saw things clearly. So this morning, our passage invites us to recognize a moment of clarity that we will one day have. When all things are done, all things will be made clear. As we said last week, this is actually the second part of a two-part, kind of two chapters that are meant to be together. Chapter 24, as it looks at the end, speaks really of the reality that there is no hope apart from God. And chapter 25 speaks of how there is inexpressibly glorious hope in God. And, and together, we are meant to, even now, in moments that maybe we feel in the fog or feel in darkness, to go, this is what we will see when we see things clearly, to help us right now. And what I want us to notice, even from the outset, is, is first of all, that this is a passage where it speaks about our relationship with God, how our relationship with God will become abundantly clear to us. And the first way we see this comes in the very first verse. Do you notice, you have, here I think Isaiah is being given like this vision. He is seeing the very end of things. And as he is seeing, what does he say? Oh Lord, you are my God. Yahweh, that is the name that God, the personal name of God. You are my God. And then when we get to the third stanza, which begins in verse 9, how does it begin? It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. So what we're being told is on that day where all things are clear, the people of God will know with absolute certainty that we can say to God, God, you are our God. Father, Son, Spirit, you are my God. Which is an incredibly significant thing to say. To, to say those words is, is more than just saying what religion is yours, that I'm Catholic or I'm Protestant or I'm Buddhist or whatever one might say. No, this is, this is declaring an allegiance. 
To say, Lord, you are my God, we are saying, you are the one that I submit myself to. My identity is in you. I choose to love you above all else. I choose to trust you. I choose to put my hope in you. And we are told that in that day, you and I will be able to say this with overwhelming confidence, purity, clarity. Because in the light, we will see the reality that this is our God. And we will praise him. And yet, part of why we need to hear this is because sometimes that, or most of the time, we don't have that level of clarity about our relationship with God in the present. In fact, actually, our passage, I think, tells us a bit why that is, why it doesn't feel that way right now. In fact, even in the, the, the initial praise, we get that indication. Notice why he says, I praise you. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. And, and literally, that word is you've done wonders. Do you know what a wonder is? Wonders are things that we do not understand. Wonders are things that are thoroughly unpredictable. Wonders are things that completely transcend our comprehension. Now, Imagine if that wasn't who our God was, if that wasn't the reason for our praise on the last day, if it wasn't just when we looked back and realized, God, you've done so many things we didn't expect. If instead it was something like, Lord God, you are the most amazing of leaders. I mean, there's, there's thousands of leadership books out right now, right? And they, they talk about, they look at some of the greatest leaders like a Steve Jobs and, and how he is able to, to have great things happen through his leadership. Imagine if it was those kinds of things that were the basis of our praise for God. Oh God, you are a visionary. You are able to mobilize hundreds of people to bring about great things. Oh God, your efficiency is beyond our ability to comprehend. You are able to leverage all sorts of strengths to do wonderful things. It might sound silly, and it is silly to think in those terms, but if that were the way we were able to speak of God, it would make sense to us. There, there is a way that we could kind of take comfort in being able to see God's progress. As we saw the way God worked, we would go, oh, I get it. I see what God is doing. Here's where he is going. But that's not the way God is. God is a God who does wonders. Which means there's no way to just look at right now and know what God is going to do tomorrow because he does things that do not make sense to us. It's not that God is unpredictable because God actually predicts himself. He, he tells us what he is going to do before he does it. In fact, that also is what we see in this, this praise. You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You have done exactly what you said you would. We, we can know what God will do, but not because we see it, but because we hear it, because we hear God say, this is what I'm going to do. And, and actually, that is what gets us to that place of discomfort that we're feeling. Because as we wait on God to do the things we long to see, our only way of being sure that it will take place is that we have his promise. Uh, to put it actually in the language of our passage, in verse 9, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him. That's, that's what makes this hard. That we, that the people of God are a people who are called to wait. We, we don't have the ability to monitor God. We have to wait for God. 
In the last uh, year, I've only begun starting uh, to use Uber. I know that I'm super behind the times in this, but I found, hey, it's great when you're in an airport. It's, it's such a handy thing. And you know, one of my favorite things about it is the moment that I have summoned Uber, which already feels powerful to speak in those terms, I'm able to look on my phone and now I see this dot and it's moving, and I know exactly the progress that this car is making, and almost there's this sense of control because I know he's like 82% of the way there, three minutes away. Now, to date myself, when I was in college, when I was a kid, I can't believe I'm already speaking these terms, I'm, but when I was 25 years ago, if I needed to get picked up from the airport, I would first have to, on a landline, call my friend, right? And we would schedule ahead of time, and they'd say, sure, I will be there. And then when you get to the airport and you walk out and wait to be picked up, not only do I not have an app to know where my friend is, I don't even have a cell phone. So if my friend is late or whatever, there's no way they have to contact me. All I can do is just wait and look and trust that what my friend said will take place. And the thing is, God is not like Uber. Right? We don't have some sort of app that says God is 82% of the way to completing his plan. We, we have his word. We have no sense of progress. We cannot monitor him because he's a God who does wonders. We just, we just are called to wait. I mean, think about it. That's exactly what we see in, the, in, in, in God's word. Think of the story of Abraham and Sarah. If you remember, for those of you who know this story... Abraham and Sarah are old, they're infertile, and God says you're going to have a kid. Already really difficult to believe. But then a year happens, and another year happens, and it's not like we see this gradual sign of progress, like they're reversing in aging and suddenly they feel better, or, or somehow like some sort of like pre-modern IVF is taking place. No, nothing. It's just waiting, and nothing's happening, and confusion, and nothing's happening, and confusion, and wonder. Isaac is born. It comes from out of nothing. There's, all they have is the promises of God. And that's what makes it hard. Because there is no monitoring. There is no sense of control. We can't look around and see, oh, yeah, yeah, I can get this. I can see what God is doing. All we are promised is that he is a God who does wonders. And he says, these are the good things I am going to do for you. And so we feel in the fog, we feel in the darkness, and this passage, what it does is it says, let me tell you in the end what you will see. Look through that point of view so that you can have the light to know what you can hope for God in. And what we, what we see here in this passage is two wonders, two things that, that do not seem at all likely right now, but will be true and we will see clearly in the end. We see our vindication and, and we see our, our salvation. So, so really what we have here is three stanzas. There's the first stanza, verses 1 through 5, and then there's like this middle vision in 6 through 8, and then 9 through the end is the third stanza. And the first and the third stanzas basically are telling us the same story from two different perspectives. And if, if you notice, both of them have kind of a character that we've been considering the last couple of weeks, or a, a theme that we've been considering the last couple of weeks, and that is the theme of God's enemies, you might say, the people of this world who are rebelling against God. So in verses 1 through 5, it's spoken of as the city. You remember last week when we saw in chapter 24, it also spoke of the city. 
And, and the final verse is it speaks of Moab, a representative of the nations. You remember how a couple weeks ago we spoke of how the nations were in Israel's sight great and God was correspondingly small. And whether we're talking about the nations or we're talking about the city, it's speaking of the same thing. It's speaking of human society with its project to live as if God doesn't matter. That's, that's the city. That's the nations. It is humanity, this world, saying, let's plan or let's try to live as if God isn't central and just pretend he doesn't exist or at least he's not important. That again and again is what Isaiah is speaking of here. And, and what we have in these verses is an awareness of how currently this city of man, we might call it, that's Augustine's language, this city of man projects strength. So we see that the city has great fortifications. It has walls that seem impenetrable. We see that the city, there is a palace there. There is wealth and strength. Or if you get to the way that Moab is described, Moab also at the very end is talking about it's, it's high fortifications. These are things that do not seem like they are ever going to come down. They project permanence. And yet we also see at the same time there are the outcasts from the city that I think actually is meant to represent those who do not identify themselves with the city of man. They're, they're spoken of as the poor in the first verses. They're spoken of as those who wait for God in the final verses. And, and the theme here is that those who do not belong to the city are those who are making sacrifices. See, that's always the way it is, actually. Um, for those who say, we will not join in with this project, we are going to seek something different, there is a cost to it. With, in Isaiah's day, we, we hear of Isaiah and his followers, the remnants, being outcasts. They are persecuted. Isaiah is eventually killed. Because they do not join this project, they are pushed away. And that holds true today as well. Um, if we choose to go a different path than the city of man, it will be costly. And when I'm talking about a different path, a different way, I'm not just talking about those badges that we oftentimes think of that make us different. I'm not just talking about only sexual ethics or our understanding of abortion. I'm speaking of something deeper. So the city of man, and by that, I'm speaking of, of the world around us. We spoke a couple weeks ago about the way the economy and, and politics and the way of life, all of these things are projected as being the strong stuff that we should put our hope in. The city of man actually offers us a plan forward, saying this is the pathway to live. Walk in it and life will be good. In our suburban context, we know what that pathway is. Work hard in school, apply and get into a good college. Work hard in college, apply and get to a good job. Work hard in your job so that you can get a good house. Have a great family. Enjoy your life as a family until you're able to retire, and hopefully you have enough savings that you can enjoy the final years, and that's the life that we are supposed to invest in. And if you buy into this plan, what we are supposed to do is have everything organized around it. So make sure that our kids have their lives organized and making sure this happens. Make sure that our financial investments is towards this plan. Make sure that our dreams and our hopes are all about this plan. But here's the problem with the plan. Do you notice there is something absolutely absent from that plan, and that is God. This is what I'm talking about, to live as if God is not central, is to buy into that plan. And, and meanwhile, 
Jesus calls us to something different, doesn't he? He says what we should be doing is seeking first the kingdom of God. What we should be doing is invest not in, in treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but, but treasures in heaven that are permanent. He says the one who seeks to hold on to his life in this world will lose it. Meanwhile, the one who is willing to lose his life for my sake will find it. He calls us to something different, which means if we reject this plan, the city of man plan, and go something else, we are going to look strange. Our our parenting choices will be out of step. The way we invest our free time will be different. The way we invest our finances, the career choices that we make, And they will be costly. If you are a parent of middle school age kids or younger, you will know that your kids are going to miss out on some really good things if you are committed to coming to church on Sundays. It's just that's the way it works right now. Or you might find that when you are thinking about career choices that there are some options where you feel like if I choose this, this will help me actually serve the world better. It is a more meaningful work. Or, or this might also help me to serve my family or my church more. But you will forego advancement and other opportunities as a result. Or if we seek to give generously to the kingdom of God in finances, that means we will lose out on other things that are good. That's the reality. To to follow Christ, to choose not to follow the way that the city of man calls us to will mean sacrifices. And there will be times that it won't seem worth it. Because what we are called to is a life of waiting. Where trusting in Christ and seeking him doesn't have immediate obvious benefits at times. Because it is not like we see God slowly progressing to doing the things he tells us that he's going to do. We're, We're just called to wait, and it can feel vulnerable. But here in our passage, God tells us that there will be a day where the hope that we have placed in him rather than the city of man will be vindicated. This really is what we have seen the last couple of weeks. It's, it's repeated again. It speaks of how these great cities with their great fortresses will crumble And those who were once considered strong will find themselves people who fear God. And where the nations like Moab, who seemed impenetrable, will be brought down and their pride will be destroyed. And those who have placed their hope in God will not be put to shame. But it's hard for us to see right now because the things of the world seem so permanent and the things of Christ seem so ephemeral, so small. And yet... Yet we do have these occasional moments, these occasional signs that this is real. So I think of some, maybe you might even know of, of, of friends, of situations, people who it seems like had absolutely no interest in Christ whatsoever, who one day something just changes and the penny drops. And suddenly someone who seemed so competent and so sure of himself will come to realize, I am nothing. And Christ is everything. 
If you know someone like that, I think this is in part one of God's ways of showing a sign of the future. This is the reality that one day all will recognize, that this world on its own is nothing apart from Christ. And we are told right now to recognize there will be a day that we will be able to sing, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. And now we are vindicated. Let us rejoice in our salvation. So that is the first of the, these, these wonders that we're being told about. But the, the other one is, is really, I think, the crown jewel of this passage. It's verses 6 through 8. So if the outer, outer two stanzas are speaking of what we will see from the perspective of this earth, the middle stanza is what we will see from the perspective of the mountain of God, of, of the home of the people of God. And what we see here is spectacular. If the outer stanzas are more talking about us recognizing that the Lord is our God, here what we have actually is God recognize or us recognizing that we belong to God, that, that we are His. So, so if you notice even in verse 8, when it speaks of, it will, He will take the repro- reproach of His people. Do you see that? His people. Have you ever thought about this? I know this seems like a small thing, but have you ever thought about that reality? Not just that God is your God, but that you are His. That there's a sense in which God can kind of speak to the angels and point out, you see those people at Trinity? They're mine. That He identifies us as belonging to Him. That is extraordinary. And on the final day, we will be able to taste and experience what that really means, and it will be amazing. So apparently in that day, uh, it was a custom that when a king was crowned, he would hold a feast, a banquet. And and that's the imagery that we begin with in verse 6, where he holds a feast in all peoples, not, not just one small group, but from all the world, people are invited to join him. And do you notice what he does? He, he feeds us. He feeds us not just with, you know, bread and water, but with, with meat, the finest cuts of meat that are uh, like, the, like fat is the way it speaks of, to, to let us know that it will be satiated on filet mignon. And, and, and wine, the, not just any wine, but, but aged wine to symbolize the joy that we will have. And God will be the one who welcomes us in because God wants us. And he desires to delight us and give us joy. There is an amazing hospitality of God that we see here towards those whom he calls his own, towards us. But we see even more than just the welcome of God. We see that God is the one who defends those he calls his own. There's this imagery here of of a shroud. You see that the veil that is spread over all nations, the covering that is cast. It is a, a death shroud. The, the imagery here is the idea that every person who is walking in this earth is, is walking with an awareness that one day he will die. Death is a horrible thing to have to talk about because when we actually think about death, it's grief, right? It's grief because we know that there, there are loved ones we have lost or that we will lose. We know that one day we will lose the use of our bodies, it is a horrible thing. It is spoken of in Scripture as the last enemy to be defeated. 
And here our passage says, God, because he says, these are my people. He says, I will not let death touch them anymore. It says he doesn't just stop death. You notice that he swallows death. He, he somehow brings death inside of him, and by so doing, he brings it to an end. So that death is no more. And even beyond him being a defender, do you, do you see what even happens beyond that? As death has come to an end, perhaps there still continues to be grief over what has taken place. There are tears. And what does our God do? He, he wipes away the tears. Now, now, that image, think about it, that's not some sort of distant thing. You don't wipe someone's tears away like this, right? It's, it, it comes in the context of an embrace, of God welcoming us into his arms. And as we grieve, him sitting with us, grieving with us, compassionate with us, and wiping our tears until the sting of our grief is gone. And then even beyond that, we see that this God who is tender and who defends us and who welcomes us also will honor us. It says, he will take away the reproach of his people. All of our shame, all of our guilt, all of the things that carry over from the pain of this world, he will remove. God says, in that day, you will see this. You will see what it means, not just that I am your God, but that you are mine. Now, it's hard to see that, isn't it? Because this is not something that we see the progress of. It's not like grief is like 60% less than it used to be. No, no, the reason that we can hold on to this reality is told us in verse 8. He will do these things for the Lord has spoken. This is the truth that we hold on to, that we wait on God for. Except the reality is that unlike for Isaiah, who only had these words to hold on to, we have an even greater word, don't we? Because it's not just that God says, I will do these things. If we understand what Jesus has done on the cross, we will realize that he already has begun to do these things. Think of what we just said about how somehow God will take death into himself and by doing so destroy it. Isn't that exactly what we see at the cross, that Jesus takes death into himself, he dies the death that we deserve, and doing so, rising from the dead, he destroys death forever. We speak of how God takes away the reproach, how we see how Jesus takes our sin and our shame on the cross and destroys it. And what do we see when Jesus is in this earth but someone who grieves with us, who, who weeps over death, who says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, soon it will turn to joy. We see exactly what God has said he will do, begun in Christ. Though we might feel like we are in darkness, yet in Christ the light is dawning. I remember when I was a kid, um, my grandparents had a house in the, the, the White Mountains in New Hampshire, and there was a period of time in the morning where if I was outdoors, it would be dark all around me, but I could see a mountain ahead, and that mountain was bright because the sun had hit that. And I want to suggest to you that that is our situation right now. Jesus has gone ahead of us. The light has already shone upon him, and he is shining his light upon us. And even though if we look around right now at our life, it feels weak, it feels insubstantial, it feels dark, and yet when we look, 
when we look at Christ, we see light and we see hope. And he tells us, do not doubt in the dark what you see to be true in my light. The promises of God will be fulfilled. He is one who already has done wonders, and he will do wonders. And even this morning, he invites us to the table to eat, to to anticipate the feast that one day we will have with him when all things are done, and we can say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice in our salvation. invite you to to take a moment with me to, to pray silently, asking whether it's for God to kind of strengthen us in our weakness, maybe to confess our sins before God, and then I will lead us in prayer in a couple